it's an enormous part of our lives. And the most successful components of profession is your relationships with people. We can't do this all on our own. There's not a, a single development in infertility modern care that was developed by a single person without uh, cooperation, collaboration, validation, and so on. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Selwyn Oskowitz. Dr. Oskowitz is the former medical director of Boston IVF. His longstanding career included many firsts that impacted the field, both in the state of Massachusetts and elsewhere, some of which included being on the team that was the first to establish a live birth from IVF. Dr. Oskowitz also developed new IVF protocols and taught them to other members of the fertility field across the world. These teachings and other research efforts resulted in additional firsts in the state of Massachusetts, the first baby from gamete interfallopian tube transfer, the first baby from a donated egg, the first baby from a frozen embryo treatment, the first baby born from the ICSI procedure, all in Massachusetts, and many others. Dr. Oskowitz is also the founder of the New England Fertility Society and is widely recognized for his patient-centered medicine and philanthropy. Dr. Oskowitz, Sal, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so very much. You're certainly making me feel welcome. Well, I think we're doing a new segment now that I've just decided, and it's called Where Are They Now in the Fertility oh. Field? And so for, for those that haven't heard from you, I think that this bio resonates with a lot of people, or is familiar to a lot of people, better said. My project manager on this podcast, Caitlin, said that she had to, it was very hard to shorten your bio down because she said, this man is amazing. I can see written in my notes. And a lot of people know you for this, but I think a lot of people have also missed you for the last four or five years. So for those that are familiar with you, and I'm going a little bit backwards, but for those that are familiar with you and, and haven't seen you since you've retired, what have you been up to the last four years? Well, I happily retired from full-time reproductive medicine in 19, uh, sorry, 2016 <laughs> and moved uh, from Massachusetts to the West Coast, which was a major transition. So it's a whole new country out here and very interesting, wonderful people, beautiful sunshine. And I was able to, I'm able to enjoy that. And of course, I invite all my colleagues who want to come say hello and have a coffee, and certainly you can have a meal too with me out here in California. Why did you decide to, to make that move? You'd been in the Northeast for a long time. Why did you decide yeah. that once you were freed up professionally that you wanted to, to move physically as well? Well, I wanted to be close to my two sons. So my eldest son, Adam, is a, a vascular surgeon, and he's working in the UC San Francisco so it's not exactly, it's, at least it's in the same time zone. So I'm happy for that. My youngest son is in the 
the movie industry and, of course, California, Los Angeles, and we were able to see him so much more. And that's what I wanted to do with the time that we have. So you move out to the West Coast to be with family, to have a bit of, of change of pace. But what have you been up to professionally, philanthropically? I know that you're involved with an organization in Rwanda. Talk a little bit about that. Having retired with all the uh, useful uh, skills that, uh, that we all develop over the years, it's, uh, I felt it's very important to utilize some of that background to help in, in uh, reinventing oneself. And uh, I was inspired by other colleagues in the field, including Melvin Tamor, who, uh, who was my mentor, or a lot of our mentors up in Boston. He was a professor of OBGYN, and he did a lot of work on hormone research, and he was a skilled surgeon. And when IVF came on the field, he, he reinvented himself. He started a sort of a new career restricted to in vitro fertilization. I thought, that's, that's fantastic. It would be nice to be able to you know, use your previous experience to enjoy a different pace and, and, and still contribute to, to our world. So the Rwanda happened by a relationship that was started through Brandeis University. They had a fellow from Rwanda. Her name An REI was, uh, fellow? No, this was a fellow in sustainable global health. Her name is Angelique Rwirika, wonderful lady, a daughter of, of 10 siblings from Rwanda, named to Brandeis. She had she received a fellowship award from my wife's foundation there, Laura Oskowitz Foundation. And so we became friendly with her. And I just said, listen, if you ever need help in infertility care in Rwanda, we'll just let me know. So that created the avenue for us. And she helped set up a relationship with the hospital. Rwanda Military Hospital, where they have OBGYNs and dozens and dozens of patients who need fertility care and no recourse for them. There was a private clinic, but no one could afford the, the fees, but for a few people. So the idea was to offer fertility care to all patients, no matter their income, no matter what they're able to afford, and so on. Is there an IVF lab there? Yes. So uh, Dr. Catherine Rokowski, who is currently the, prof the president of ASRM, generously donated her time and energy to this project and donated laboratory equipment, including two incubators, microscopes, instruments, and a host of other things, and came out herself to Rwanda to uh, set the lab up and test it, QC it, and start teaching the process. The whole idea is we wanted to be sustainable. We don't want to just move in and do a few cases and then come back out. That's, uh, that isn't sustainable. We, we sort of teach people to fish, if you will. And she was part of the volunteer. She still is, of course, involved in teaching the Rwandan technicians, who are basically laboratory, not embryologists yet, but now they are. We're training them so that they can do it themselves. Are you only training while you're in Rwanda? Are you also doing retrievals and transfers and doing some cycles while you're there? We're doing some cycles in the training mode. So uh, we're there with the, uh, the doctors and there's some residents as, as well, some students too. But we're training the doctors virtually hands-on to do the stimulation, the retrieval, and the transfers. And at the same time, we have laboratory volunteers. So these are all volunteers who give up their time to come and do hands-on training. And I, I, I have to mention Keith Isaacson, 
on the clinical side, who's an expert at and not only IVF, but in hysteroscopy, laparoscopy, which is essential. You know, I can go on and on about how, uh, int- how one introduces a new procedure in a country that doesn't have one. It's, a, it's a, a not simply a, a one-off procedure. You know, there's a whole infrastructure that needs to be developed in order to sustain a high-tech procedure. In other words, patients uh, needed the basic surgery. They needed to have their tubes corrected. They needed fibroids removed. And they needed to be done with uh, modern uh, laparoscopic techniques. And uh, we had to introduce all of that. And the people that you're training, these are Rwandan OBGYN physicians? Yes, they are Rwandan OBGYN physicians. They some of the doctors are from a nearby uh, nearby countries. There's uh, one doctor from uh, uh, Nigeria and so on. That's not unusual where uh, professionals may move to an adjacent state. But they're Rwandans. They're basically are Rwandan trained physicians. The critical thing is out of a 12 million population, there are barely 50 Rwandan OBGYNs, you know, <laughs> That's a very small number, as you can imagine, and they do all OBGYN. I'll have a patient who's bleeding in labor, which is an emergency, you have to do emergency cesareans, emergency cesareans. One of the things about early IVF that all colleagues who started IVF programs in the United States was a dedication of OBGYN to reproductive endocrinology. In other words, they basically stopped doing the uh, obstetrics and the deliveries to focus on, on the reproductive endocrinology, which is a, a seven-day-a-week process and requires a, a, a lot of dedication in time. You know, you cannot postpone a retrieval because you called away to do an emergency cesarean. So that's still a problem we, we're struggling with in, in Rwanda is a, a lack of not only the lack of resources, they have a lot going there, of course. When I say lack, it's compared to the United States. But they also have a lack of physician expertise and time. So we're working hard with that to try and improve that situation. So there's a population of 12 million. There's about 50 OBGYNs in the entire country? Entire country. So does that mean for regular gynecological care. I imagine a lot of people are going without. I imagine a lot of people are going without basic primary care for those that are somehow able to receive some type of OBGYN care. Are they typically, or gynecological care, are they typically going to a primary care physician for that if there's only 50 for 12 million Mm -hmm. people? Well, they have midwives, so they have a whole cadre of midwifery services. And Rwanda's done a lot amongst the African nations to improve maternal mortality, which is one of the criteria that you judge obstetrical care. So they have outreach programs. They have lay educators that teach women about where they should go when they're pregnant. And they get the counseling by using nurses. And in, in, they do this all at the local uh, village clinics. They have a hierarchy system of once the clinic feels they've done all they can and they need a further intervention, they get referred to a, a regional center, which is a, a more advanced clinic, if you will, then regional medical centers, and then the major centers, which are in Kigali and some of the bigger cities. 
Is this program the only REI training in this part of Africa? No, this is you know Eastern Africa. So we have Nigeria, huge country, and they have ongoing IVF programs there. And in fact, some of the patients prior to our arrival, some of the patients had to go there to Nigeria, Kenya, Ethiopia, some even go to Tanzania. These are all countries that are border on each other. I do think we're one of the very few, if not the only one in East Africa that takes care or is attempting to take care of all comers. This is the idea of the philanthropic approach. And the small number of patients who can afford a private clinic in which there's one in Rwanda is fine for, for them, but we wish to provide this service. And that's what we're starting with to all patients regardless of the ability to pay. How often do you go? Well, I uh, initially, on, on retiring, I used to go there about four times a year. And now I go a lot less, maybe once a year to work with our volunteers. Some of the doctors, including Joe Gianfortoni, who is also retired, does a lot of philanthropic work and has gone out once and he uh, can't wait to go again. Uh, of course, Keith Isaacson, we've been out there a couple of times with him. Uh, of course, he gets very busy because he has to do both the REI side as well as the surgical component. There's a big bottleneck of patients who need surgery. They can't do IVF yet because they they might have a submucous myoma. They might have a hydrocelpinx that's even difficult to diagnose laparoscopically, etc. So he has to help them get those patients ready for IVF. Then there's a, a wonderful character. It's going, to, it's going to be angry with me for using the word character, but Eduardo Kelly used to run Serono in the United States. And he's now a fully accomplished laboratory advisor. And he's volunteered his time. He's been out there on two occasions to help with training. Of, of the endocrinology lab people. Even had, we brought uh, Rwandan professionals to the United States. We brought them to ASRM, but Eduardo's actually brought Belisi Yamwabali. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. She came out for three weeks to study under his tutelage in California. Did this idea of I'm going to go help get this program underway, I'm going to train, I'm going to be active using the skills that I've practiced my entire career, did this help make retirement more tenable of an idea for you? Yes, it did. It, it made it more tenable. But you know, that's a word that we need to keep in abeyance because retirement means a whole host of things. I mean, told that retirement in the romantic languages means a jubilation. There's so much that one can do. And I want all people who've, who've considered retirement to think about the books that they can read, you know, that, that I'm enjoying now. Also enjoy a little bit of painting. I'm not that good, of course. So I, <laughs> I to rely on my social security rather than painting to make a living. Yes. So staying engaged in your area of accumulated expertise is, is helpful. It's not essential, but it's helpful. And one example of how to retire is to look at one of the four doctors that started Boston IVF. He's Erwin uh, uh, Thompson. He'd, uh, he was one of the first founders uh, with, with us, me, uh, Mike Alper, and uh, Ms. Mel Berger. 
Uh, now, Erwin Thompson retired in his early 60s, and he said, I'm retiring from medicine as well. I want to do all the things I love doing besides my love for medicine, and I'm disengaged from that now. And I'm, he, he is a painter. He's had several one-man shows. He's also a poet, and he also loves life and his time off. And that's his form of retirement, a very intellectual, cultural approach to a society. And uh, it doesn't do any medicine at all. And he loves that. Um, but I like exploring this, and I like starting the conversation backwards because it gives you also you know, the the way you mentioned the gynecological roots of REI and it gives us a sort of flashback to, to bounce to and forth from. But I want to explore this idea of retirement. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you about it is because I hear so many people thinking about it. And I think they're just, it sounds like they're just unsure about a lot. I can't counsel on it. I hope that I'm, I'm pretty far from that point in my life, but I see just people weighing a lot of different options. One of the things I hear is, well, what would I do? Would I just, would I, would I go golf and they're entertaining offers of their partner buying them out or they're entertaining offers from private equity. And maybe it's the timing, but I just don't know what they do. How many days can they go to the golf course? And it sounds like between you and your colleagues that you, you found some different meaningful things to do. Right. And I, I think the whole question of retirement is so complex and so intricate and so on. And I think that a whole session can be devoted to that. And I do think it's very important, not only because of the things that one can do, but I think for some people, one shouldn't retire that retirement may not be for them. There's some people who really miss their cultural support of the, the people that they work with and love every day. And the enormous professional feedback and, and that you get from finding out new things, sharing expertise, and of course, most importantly, the relationship with patients who you're struggling to help, who you help sometimes and others who you don't, that part of life is so intense. And for some doctors, if you have your health, you know, those, those doctors should continue with what they're doing because they will miss it enormously. I fortunately don't miss it that much because of what we just discussed, my work in Rwanda and all the other things I enjoy on the West Coast. How did you discern the decision? How did you know it was time? I really want to do, uh, do some volunteer charitable work. And it was very difficult being in full-time practice. And it's also difficult to do that in the United States. At the same time that I was thinking of retiring, the theme at ASRM was access to care. Over and above all the wonderful research that's being done in terms of vitrification and genetic analyses and uh, non-invasive analyses of MVs, et cetera. They, uh, one thing that became a very important at ASRM is access to care. And just in summary, it's a very difficult area. Now, one can do a, you can do a one-off where you make a donation or you, every time there's a, a successful pregnancy, you make another donation. Some people do that. There's some papers about starting a, a nonprofit organization to try and raise some money, but, but it's very difficult. 
And also there's a lot of opposition. Uh, it's a struggle between what's made medicine in America successful, the capitalistic incentives and connections and energies that derive from that versus taking care of those who cannot afford it with the current infrastructure that we have. So just to say it's very complicated. My feeling always, I want to, do, I want to help now all comers. I don't want to be restricted by the Massachusetts insurance, which is better than just about every other state in the, in the country. But I, I, I want to be successful in a place where I'm more likely to be successful, which is a place like Rwanda, where they, they just love the idea, of course, and where it, it's just a, a natural, where one doesn't get pushback from industry, because industry is constantly trying to enable their products to be sold and sold more efficiently. And, and, and you know, enormous amounts have been accomplished that way. I, don't, I do not want to take away from the way the system is developed in terms of marketing and so on. But I thought if I could be successful in Africa, then I can take that to start in America, because America needs charitable work or access to care. There are different things, but access to care is, is something that is a really a big challenge in the United States. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. Well, you brought up a lot of the capital interests that are present in the field that built the field to the level of industry that some would call it today. Some don't like that term, but to the level of all of the different companies that are involved. And that, I think, is a reason why some do sort of want to retire. For better or worse, it just isn't the same field that they 
signed up for some time ago. And you know, I came into the field 2014, 2015, and I imagine it will be a very different place in 2035 and 2045. And it might not be something that it might not be the same thing that I signed up for. And it might bear very little resemblance to what I signed up for in, in 2015 or 2016. So you came into a time where this is one of the first private practices in the country. You join up with Harvard pretty early on to have that academic affiliation. But by the time you exit in 2016, by the time you retire, you're the founder of co-founder of and medical director of one of the largest fertility groups in the entire continent. So I, I guess, you know, does that play into one's decision as well. How, you know, how much did it change to where this isn't what I signed up for and I don't like this anymore versus, you know, I'm still excited and because it's, it's something new. Describe the balance or lack thereof between those two. Yeah. So I, I retired when I was still really excited and still am very excited about the the field that we're all in. It's a wondrous field with uh, things that are changing, with opportunities for improvement and human engagement, and that is wonderful, and that is continuing. Most of us feel that this is what we signed up for and, and even better than what we expected. I just need to make a further clarification that I, I was medical director in the first five years or so, of Boston IVF, getting it started, introducing the new protocols. And then uh, it, it was handed over to Owen Thompson, Mel Berger, and then Michael Alper, who's been the medical director for the last uh, decade or, or a couple of decades or so. The, the size of Boston IVF uh, is, is related to initial thrust and value of the insurance mandate. So Boston IVF started in 1986. We were all part of the Harvard Medical School Association with Beth Israel Hospital, and the department was run by Melvin Tamor, and we were doing research on the various aspects of IVF under Mel Tamor. And then there's another story that we can tell you about as to how the first in vitro baby was conceived in a state where they had forbidden it's illegal to do research with embryos. There's a a law, I believe it's still on the books, that uh, one cannot do research on embryonic uh, material. But uh, right now, the way IVF is done is that the attorney general feels that it's it's not uh, in contravention of that uh, law. But initially, before doing IVF, we had to deal with that legal component and the so-called ethics that surrounded that that whole process. And so if... You were so for you, uh, uh, there was this change. You were excited about the changes that were happening. You ultimately decided to retire because of some other things that excited you, including but not limited to volunteering in Rwanda. If I can put you on the spot for a second and ask you an on the spot question, how would you describe, if you had to summarize it briefly, the best? of the changes that you saw in the field and the worst of the changes you saw in the field? Well, the easier question is the best of the changes because there was so much 
positive and wonderful gains that occurred in terms of the medication that we were able to use starting off in the early days with Clomid and then adding uh, HMG and our industry was able to do the research to give us much more refined products. Serona was very big in the research in those days. It's another reason why I think that we were uh, we enjoyed the wave of success in Massachusetts and it grew so big in that Serono was headquartered in Massachusetts. Serono used to have a, a special division, which was independent, called Serono Symposia. And their mission was to educate patients and doctors, researchers, with teachers from the best in the world. We'd have people like Bruno Lunenfeld who was a close friend of Mel Tamer. He used to do, he, could, he did research in Switzerland, Israel, and, and Serona Symposia used to bring these experts out to us to teach us uh, these new techniques. So uh, talking about the best, so uh, medication was difficult initially. They were uh, intra, uh, in, intramuscular shots. Every day you'd, you'd get a shot, and then some patients uh, needed twice a day shots it was a very difficult, intense process. So another good thing is how patient-friendly a lot of IVF has become. And I'd say that our group at Boston IVF was very focused on patient-friendly IVF. So we were the first to move into a subcutaneous approach when the first subcutaneous gonadotropins came out, like Metrodin, Fertinex, Bravel and, and, and other nice developments that came out. Of course, finally, we have Gonal F uh, that is uh, even given by a cartridge. It's a lot easier. You just dial up the dose. So these things all became much easier for patients. And their learning curve on this was, became much easier with all these opportunities, including the development of the computer, where a computer-informed consent became available and made much more streamlined and patients uh, would spend less time uh, out away from their work and their families, not all families, their husbands and, and children, if they had them, having secondary infertility, for example. Patient-friendly IVF, uh, we also introduced subcutaneous uh, HCG triggering. And the uh, human chorionic gonadotrophin uh, traditionally had been given intramuscularly. So there's another painful shot <coughs> to uh, do the final maturation of the eggs. And we learned from the Canadians that you can give it subcutaneously quite successfully. And we took that information, introduced it subcutaneously. There's always pushback when you, you move in a different direction. People that become stalwarts, they like the intramuscular. It's a good dose and it's a good route. And, but with a lot of pushback, we, we still managed uh, finally to get everybody to agree subcutaneous HCG uh, works very well. We also adopted vaginal progesterone as opposed to intramuscular progesterone. Intramuscular progesterone is quite brutal. It's an oily solution uh, nowadays, although I'm, I'm hearing now that there's a new aqueous solution, a lot easier to give. So a lot of good stuff. And nature's been very forgiving uh, in terms of uh, having embryos that thrive in the various media that, uh, that have developed over time. And then the development of global media by John Biggers, who is a giant in in vitro fertilization from the, uh, the Laboratory of Human Research and Reproduction, LHRRB. So we had staff and colleagues who uh, came out of that uh, institution, and including Catherine Rokowski, who uh, developed the global media Blastasis culture came later. In the earlier years, uh, we, we 
at best we'd grow the embryos for two or three days. And then blastoderm culture came out and there were all kinds of thoughts that how are we going to have the media, the correct media to nourish this more advanced embryo? And Biggers and Rakowski developed this global media and then generously shared all this information with industry without taking any, uh, without going the patent route, which uh, I'd say that's the, the, if I put that on the negative side as the, the development of patents on this wonderful research that comes out. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because just hearing the experiences of your career, it's very much a highlight reel of the field and it has been overwhelmingly good by that view. And I wonder, Patton, sounds like it could be one, but do you also have concerns about where the field has ended up or where it's going? Yes, a lot of concerns about the involvement of patenting of information. Uh, patenting of of uh, uh, biologic material, people bat, bat do, and uh, suddenly deciding that they own a, a gene that they they discovered. Now, this is complex stuff. I mean, uh, you know, if, uh, Columbus discovered America and claimed it for himself, <laughs> and and that's fine, and that's how things work, and that's wonderful. Should we do it if you discover a gene in a chromosome? We all uh, have. Uh, genes of that nature, and these belong to mankind and uh, all the animal species, vegetable species as well. So can one claim them? And uh, if one wants to put their name on it and get the the recognition they deserve, and they really deserve these researchers do it and put their name on it, but the the economics of patenting can become a problem, can be toxic. And the classic example is with the BRCA gene, where one becomes a high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And the the cost of doing that test was was high because of some patenting uh, issues. I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about retirement, to talk about a career and building a career over the field that sees these tremendous accomplishments and then other concerns and to get your experience on that. Because when you and I first met, it was at at essentially your retirement party at NEFS. And I had only been in the field for probably less than two years at that point. So I was pretty new and you and I hadn't met previously. And the people that came to speak and did your slideshow and the (laughs) stories that people were talking about you for the rest of that meeting in Vermont that at that hotel were just really fond of you, that everyone had nothing but good things to say and that you had also touched their career in many ways. And that I, I looked at that and I watched that and I thought, damn, I want somebody to make a slideshow and be crying about how much I touched their career in 30 years. That's the type of career that I want to build. And if I don't do it, I'll feel like I I haven't left every stone or I haven't unturned every stone that I could have in my professional life. And so, Sal, how would you want to conclude with our audience about the career that they can build, the legacy they can leave, and when they know they might be satisfied with it. Well, I, I'd like to tackle that. Uh, that's a wonderful question. And uh, 
one of the things I admire about you is your observation of uh, life's happenings pertaining to people. Let's focus on, can I focus the answer on the joy of, uh, of, of who one is in one's profession? Because the profession is, is, is a, a large part of our lives, uh, and that brings up a lot of uh, other issues in terms of gender issues and profession and so on. It's an enormous part of our lives, and the most successful components of profession is your relationships with people. We can't do this all on our own. There's not a single development in infertility modern care that was developed by a single person without cooperation, collaboration, validation, and so on, and the spirituality that comes with it. And spirituality is a tough subject. But there's an enormous human spirituality in collegial relationships, giving the recognition to uh, other people, just sometimes talking with them, quoting them, sharing time with them is so valuable and so constructive in, uh, in what we do and the research we do. We get ideas just by an intimation by a colleague, and we then develop them, even though the idea may have gone in a different direction from the first person who thought about it. So that's a wonderful part of our lives. And I also want to mention that retirement, even though that's when we first met was when I was retiring, it's not the, it's not the victory lap, if you will. It used to be. I think in the old days, uh, when one had back-breaking work, you know, literally uh, lugging uh, bales of coal and things like that, then I think retirement was a, a, a more of a blessing. Today, there is so much uh, network relationships that we have and so many other avenues of contributing to medicine in spite of our skills declining. So one has to change, of course, uh, one's contribution to uh, research and patient care, depending on your skill sets and so on, which just do decline with time. And there, are, let me just emphasize: there are nice, lovely, uh, creative ways in, in one's humanity to continue uh, professional activity. And of course, retirement has its own joys, but it's not the be-all and end-all for everybody. And I wanted to emphasize that. And one of the things about retiring that I'd like to caution against is that sometimes one gets cut off from all those wonderful relationships that mean a lot more than medicine, but are essential for medical care and medical progress as well. And it hasn't happened to you. So thank you for continuing to collaborate both with your programs via your philanthropic efforts and here on the show on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for letting us know, Dr. Selwyn Oskowitz, what you've been up to and letting everyone who's missed you the last few years, letting them know what you're up to, because I think many of them would like to contact you and I hope hope they do. Thank you so very much, Griffin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.